Welcome again. We're in James, chapter 2 now, and I've called this No Partiality and the Law of Liberty. We'll hopefully cover verses 1 to 13 today, so I'll just pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to be in your word. Reveal truth to us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we covered James chapter 1, verses 17 to 27, and we learned what true religion looks like, what thoughts, words, and deeds are pleasing to God and reflect his nature. So we need to listen before we speak. We learned about how the word of God is able to save our souls. We learned about being a doer, not just a hearer, and also what true repentance looks like. It's a changed life which is others-focused and not self-focused. Now we continue in chapter 2. And we learn about the royal law, the law of love, as we put our faith into practice by loving others and not showing partiality, and also by showing mercy at the end of this section. So what we usually do is read our memory verse, so we'll still do that. So James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, this is our theme verse for the book of James, and hopefully by the end it'll be solidified in your memories. So let's all read this together. You ready? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, we're going to start reading from James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So, before we get into Going through it verse by verse, John Corson has this really good summary of this, so I'm just going to read it to you, and I'm going to Australianize it. So he says, If you knew that in 10 minutes you would have a half-hour meeting with Scott Morrison, would you comb your hair, brush your teeth, think about what you would say? What if you knew that in 10 minutes you would meet with a homeless man, would you expend the same kind of energy? makes you think, doesn't it? And he continues, This is what James is getting at. We're all vulnerable. We're all guilty of treating people differently, depending on how we view them outwardly. But almost without exception, the irony is that the people we try to impress the most are those who care about us the least, while the people who really would be open to receiving from us are those for whom we don't think we have time. He continues, 
on the high school campus. So often the goal is to see the quarterback or the head cheerleader saved. The real key, however, is to go for the kid who sits at the back of the canteen all alone, for he's the one who is most often the one ready to listen. The same holds true where you work. We tend to get all excited about the people we highly esteem financially or professionally, economically or intellectually. But it's the poor people who will be most responsive to the message and most welcoming of us. Because we so often waste our time trying to impress people who are impressed with themselves, we need to change our perspective. I like what he says there. We try to impress people who are impressed with themselves. It doesn't work, does it? And he continues, That is what James is championing. Why is it, he asked, that when someone comes into your congregation who is dressed in fine clothes, who has a name, or who is esteemed highly, you give him the best seat in the house? Of how we need to be aware of our own fleshly tendencies. End of quote. So, think about it. Why do we show partiality? Because of what we think we can get or what we want from that person. That's our sinful nature. That's how we come to people often. What can that man do for me? What favours can I receive from this person? How is this person going to benefit me? That's the basis, that's the attitude behind partiality, selfishness. So verse 1, chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So this first part is all about not holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. So why not? Well, it's not consistent with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. James is saying that those who practice favoritism contradict their profession of faith. They're in effect denying their Lord, right? They're denying the truth they claim to believe. Or we can say it this way, we're not living in accordance with the character of God. Why? Because God doesn't show partiality. And that's what James means when he says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. We could also say, don't claim to be living as a Christian if you are showing favoritism or partiality. So the scriptures that show that God does not show partiality are Deuteronomy 10.17. It says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality or takes a bribe. And I'm going to go straight to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35 from the Amplified Version. And it says, And Peter opened his mouth and said, Most certainly and thoroughly I now perceive and understand that God shows no partiality and is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he who venerates and has a reverential fear for God, treating him with worshipful obedience and living uprightly, is acceptable to him and sure of being received and welcomed by him. So I like the Amplified Version there. It finishes with, And sure of being received and welcomed by him. Those who repent and believe are sure to be welcomed. That's it. That's all you have to do. And you can also see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. It says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized 
into one body. That means united into. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And in Galatians, it says the similar thing. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the main point here. So, breaking it down, I know it's fairly simple, but this is what the scripture is saying. To be accepted into God's family, to receive the adoption as a child of God, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, the big boss, or the, the newest kid on the block. Male or female, Jewish or non-Jewish, rich or poor, all are accepted by God. And I like an idea that I heard somewhere else. It's the cross makes life a level playing field for everybody. Because we're all born in this world and we all have different opportunities. Some people have more opportunities and some people have less. But when it comes to the opportunity to be saved and to be used by God, we all have the same opportunity. It's a level playing field. Now, what does this mean practically? In God's eyes, everyone has the same worth or value. There is no one who is more loved or less loved in God's kingdom, in God's eyes. So when we treat someone as if they are better or worse than someone else, then we are not demonstrating the same love and care that God has for them. And we should be just as willing and likely to invite the cleaner over for dinner as he would the pastor. So 1 Corinthians 12, 18-22 says, But our bodies have many parts. And of course here it's talking about the body of Christ, right? It's an analogy. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. <laughs> Imagine if we're all feet, you know. Hopping around, knocking into each other because we couldn't see each other, right? Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. So, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. Now, even though we all have the same value or worth, we don't all have the same role, and we don't all have the same gifts. So, there's differences. God doesn't promote uniformity where everyone is the same and must do the same and say the same and act the same and in the sense that they all have the same role in church. But God has given us different roles and we all work together. And that's what makes life interesting in the body of Christ. And this applies both to the family and to the church. Like in the family, there's different roles for men and women and in the church there's different roles for men and women. 
And there's also different levels of authority. So in the Godhead, there's the Father, who has authority over the Son, who has authority over man, the man of the house, and then the man of the house has the authority over the woman. And we get that from 1 Corinthians 11.2. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So basically, the authority structure goes like this. The father is the head of the son, who is the head of the man, who is the head of the woman. And that's just to bring things into perspective, because I've heard it said that, oh, there's no male and female, which means there's no different roles for males and females anymore. No, that's not right. In the church and in the family, there are different roles for the woman and for the man. So these different roles, these different gifts, and these different responsibilities and levels of authority don't make us more or less important or valuable than anyone else, but rather those differences enable the body to function as God intended it to, and it brings glory to God. Now also in verse 1 it says, or it describes Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. This is a very direct way of saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And a theologian called Moffat comments, The Christian religion is here called, more explicitly, belief in the Lord Jesus who is the divine glory. A striking term for Christ as a full manifestation of the divine presence and majesty. The Jews call this the Shekinah. Now, where have you heard that before? The Shekinah glory. It's in the Old Testament, right? The Shekinah glory of God. That was Yahweh, Jehovah. Yeah? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord. Here, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Shekinah glory. And we move on to verse 5. God has chosen the poor. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, our tendency is to show partiality to the rich because we might get something from them, right? That's our selfish thinking. But God's the opposite. God seems to show partiality to the poor. (laughs) But didn't we just read that God doesn't show partiality? Is this a contradiction in the scriptures? (laughs) They are chosen. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What about the rich? Well, let's have a look at it. So they are chosen to be rich in faith because the poor of this world simply have more opportunities to trust God and are therefore more likely to be rich in faith than the rich man. And a commentator called Maya says, The rich man may trust him, but the poor man must. And so the key word there is may trust him. The rich man, he can trust in his riches. But the poor man's got nothing else to trust in except God. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. I love the way he says that. So it's not that God loves the poor man more than the rich. It's just that it's harder for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. So, you know, in our Western society, we consider being rich to be blessed. But from a spiritual perspective, it's not like that, is it? 
Matthew 19, 20-24, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. This is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Oh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says this to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So basically, humanly impossible. Why? The way I think of it is because they're trusting in their external circumstances. They don't realize their need for God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Isn't that interesting? So church history, and I think if you look around, church history confirms that proportionally more poor people come to Christ than rich people for this simple fact that if you're rich, then you've got less reason to trust Christ. Now, another sense that God chooses the poor is that when Jesus came to earth as a man, he lived in poverty. A commentator called Meyer says, There is nothing that men dread more than poverty. They will break every commandment, every one of the Ten Commandments, rather than be poor. Pretty true, isn't it? I'm going to lose my job. <gasps> I'm going to have a lot of money. Oh no, oh no, oh no. You know, it's like... <laughs> It's like the heart attack. I'm going to be poor. No, that, that can't be right. We live in the Western world. We're not allowed to be poor. Think about most of the Christians and the rest of the world. What's their status? Poor. But they're blessed. But it is God's chosen lot to be poor. He had one opportunity only of living our life, and he chose to be born of parents too poor to present more than two doves at his presentation in the temple. And what he means by that is that if you were rich, you'd bring two lambs. But if he couldn't afford the lambs, when you brought your child in to be dedicated, then you have to just bring a couple of doves, which was a lot cheaper. So it's God's way of saying, if you can't afford it, if you're poor, just bring the doves. And that's what Mary and Joseph did. Alright, verse 6 and 7. But you have dishonoured the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So why is this? Why do the rich oppress us, the Christians, mainly? Well, the Bible says the love of money is a root of all evil. If money rules you, then it's a terrible master because as a slave, we can do some terrible things. People do awful things for the sake of money. First Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So now we come to verses 8 and 9. 
And the main point here is the royal law and love your neighbor. So it says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is now explaining why partiality is wrong by quoting the royal law. Now, what is the royal law? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in the New Testament, the lawyers asked Jesus, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all questioning him. And so this time it's the lawyers who are asking him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, the royal law, love God and love your neighbor, sum up the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments is how we relate to God. The last six commandments describe our relationship with men, with other people. And when we show partiality, inevitably we break at least one of the last six commandments, either disobedient to parents or hating or lusting, stealing, lying and coveting. And this is not loving our neighbor. Now, this is all good. We say, yep, don't discriminate. Treat everyone the same. And this is where the church sometimes slips up. Because at the same time, we are commanded not to compromise with sin. We are told not to accept professing Christians who are living a sinful lifestyle into our churches. There's this whole thing called church discipline which I don't have time to go into now. But I'll give you the principle of it now. The boat belongs in the water, but the water doesn't belong in the boat. So we must be careful to, in love, use church discipline to keep professing Christians who choose to persist in sinful activities out of our churches. Otherwise, the sin will spread like leaven spreads in dough. You know, when you make a loaf of bread, leaven, yeast, and it spreads throughout the entire loaf of bread throughout all the dough. Basically what happens is if you allow sin in the church, the church is contaminated and it will lose its power. The church needs to be holy. Only a holy church is a powerful church. Why is that? Because sin separates us from God. If we allow sin into the church, then we don't have that same fellowship with God. And therefore, we don't have the same power working through us. Now, the scripture which makes this really clear is 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. to The whole situation is the, the man who was living in sexual sin. And the church said, hey, this is great. Look how accepting and welcoming we are. We even accept sexual sin in our church. But Paul said, no, don't do that. And this is his explanation. 
When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. It's very important. That influence will contaminate the lives of the other people. Now the purpose of the law, verses 10 to 13. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, a lawbreaker. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's go to verse 10. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now there's some people who think, well, I'm a good person because... It could be, well, I've never murdered anyone and I always treat people well. Well, they've probably done a pretty good job at keeping one or two of the commandments. But is that going to be enough? I like to think of it this way. The law is like a chain with ten links. One link for each of the ten commandments. And we're hanging over a raging fire with only this chain to keep us safe. And it only takes one of those ten chain links to break for us to fall into the fire. That's what it's like for those who trust in their own goodness. Breaking just one of God's laws is the same as breaking them all in the sense that it has the same consequences, eternal damnation and separation from the love of God in the lake of fire. So remember, what's the purpose of the law? Oh. We'll get into that later, but it's to show us that we're sinners, yeah? There's an analogy from John Corson. He says, it's like the space shuttle. The space shuttle is designed to go up into the heavenlies. But if any one part of it is not functioning properly or is flawed in any way, it won't lift off. So too, you may not have killed anyone or committed adultery, but if you've lied, your shuttle is grounded. <laughs> in other words, you're not going to heaven based on your own merit. So the law, James is talking about the law here, so let's go through what its purpose is. So, firstly, the law condemns us. Romans 3.19, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. And the same verse in the New King James Version, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, 
and all the world may become guilty before God. That's it. The law condemns us. It shows us that we are guilty sinners. The law also shows us what sin is, Romans 3.20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. 1 John 3.4 Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin is contrary to the law of God. And Romans 7, 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. This is Paul talking. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So basically, Paul's saying, well, I didn't even know that coveting was wrong. I was just doing it. But when I read it in the Bible, I read the 10th commandment, you must not covet. Whoops. That's just an attitude, right? So the law is spiritual. And the Lord teaches us that we need a saviour. Galatians 3.24 Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law is like a schoolmaster or teacher or tutor that brings us to faith in Christ. The law doesn't help us, it just leaves us helpless. The law doesn't justify us, it just leaves us guilty before a just and holy God. And this is important. We are not saved by the law, we are saved by grace through faith. The law just shows us that we are filthy dirty and in desperate need of God's cleansing. Now, we come to verse 12, and we come to a different law. This time it's called the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So as Christians, we are under or judged by the law of liberty. Now this is in contrast to the law of sin and death that leads to condemnation. Remember from last week, we talked about this before. It's called the law of liberty because it's what our new nature wants to do. We don't have to keep it, but we want to keep it. It's not that we've got to, but we get to. So when a man is, or a person is saved or born again, God gives him a new heart with new desires to obey God and seek God. And even more importantly, God also gives us everything we need, which is himself, to live a godly life. So 2 Peter 1, 3-4, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvellous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So, As Christians, we are truly free to obey God. We don't have to, but we are free to. That's why it's called the law of liberty. And remember, we can never be condemned by this law because Jesus has paid the fine for all our sins when he died on the cross. We have already received, past tense, his gift of forgiveness, redemption, adoption and salvation. It's done. It's a done deal. 
But now we have the question, will I use my freedom to live for Christ or live for myself? Yes, our salvation is guaranteed, but guess what? We are going to stand before the beam of seat and be judged by Christ. And you might think, hang on, I'm a Christian. I thought I wasn't going to be judged. Well, yes, you will be. But it's not the same judgment as the great white throne judgment for the unbelievers. So if someone turn the light off, I'll show you on the chart how this works time-wise. So here we are. We're here in the church age. And soon, soon and very soon, we will go straight up. Meet Christ in the clouds, receive our glorified body. All the people who died as believers will get their resurrection bodies as well and we'll be in heaven with Jesus. Now while we're in heaven, while the tribulation is happening, this is where the Bema Seat judgment happens, or this is when it happens. We will be judged. Not for salvation, but for reward. Okay, Not for salvation, we're already saved. Anyone who's there... Is already there. You're already in. You've made it, yeah? Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And you'll be rewarded for the things you did for Christ. Remember that poem? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's here. Then, after the tribulation, you've got the thousand year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You've got the final war. And at the very end of that, we have the great white throne judgment. The earth and heaven has been destroyed. It's burned up in fervent heat. And the great white throne judgment happens. This is what the Bible calls a second resurrection. And all unbelievers are judged. Okay, it's really important to understand that it's only for unbelievers. So the Bema Seat judgment is not the great white throne judgment. We're not talking about a judgment on condemnation. We're talking about a judgment on reward. The Great White Throne Judgment you'll read about in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. You can do that yourself. And as I was saying before, the Great White Throne Judgment happens at the end or after the end of the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ Jesus on earth. And it's after the heavens have been burned up and have disappeared. And importantly, it's only for those whose names are not written in the Book of Life. That is, they died as unbelievers. Now, if you die as an unbeliever, your fate is sealed. You will be judged according to your deeds and cast into the lake of fire where you will be in torment forever and ever, eternally separated from the love of God and forever under and suffering his wrath. Now, in contrast, the beam seat judgment occurs in heaven just after the church is raptured and resurrected. And all who make it to the beam seat judgment do have their names written in the book of life and in the Lamb's book of life. They all died as believers or were raptured as believers. So their fate is also sealed. If you die as a believer, you will spend eternity with God, sharing his glory and basking in his love and grace. Now, what's his beam of seat? Well, it comes from the ancient Olympic Games, the Greek Olympic Games. The winners would stand on the podium and receive the reward. If they won the race, they get a medal. They get a wreath that goes on their head. It's just a flowery, leafy thing. 
our reward as believers will depend entirely on how much of our lives we have lived for Christ. Anything that I do that isn't motivated by love for Christ will burn up. It's as simple as that. And that's why James is giving us this very stern warning. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We are free to do what we want, yes. We're saved. It's guaranteed. It's done. Don't be scared about losing your salvation. But you will be rewarded and you will have to give an account. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? You have to give an account for every idle word. So what we do now will count for eternity. James is reminding us to be careful to honour God in everything we say, do and think. Now, the scripture that describes the beam of seat judgment is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, so we'll just read it together. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be, what? Very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So remember that, the builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So in summary, the law of liberty has liberty or freedom. We are free to obey or to disobey. Yet it is still a law that must be obeyed and that will be judged by at the judgment seat of Christ. So, will I use my freedom to serve Christ or serve myself? For his benefit or for my benefit? So again, it won't affect my salvation, but it will affect my reward and my future role in God's kingdom on earth. It's important to think about this. Because Jesus said many times, if you're faithful in the little bit that we have now, you will receive much more responsibility and authority in the time to come, in the millennial reign. And that's going to be important. You might not think about it now, but it's going to be really important then. Okay, And you'll be looking back and saying, oh, you know, I wish I'd had different priorities back there on earth. Now we come to the last verse for today, verse 13. I've titled this, Show mercy and you will receive mercy. So James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to read Luke 32-38. to But before we do, I'll just explain it. One of the things that we will be rewarded for is showing mercy. That's in the context of this thing about we're going to be judged, right? One of the things we're going to be judged on is how well we showed mercy. 
Why show mercy? It was because God is merciful. It's part of his nature. The reward is partly in this life because if you're a merciful person, then you're more likely to receive mercy from another person. If you're a forgiving person, then more likely than not, other people around you will forgive you when you hurt them. But if you're not, and you're a person who's very harsh with people, then generally speaking, people will tend to be harsh with you. So the other reward is in the next life, when we are rewarded for showing mercy. So let's read Luke 32 to 38. It says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So this is how we are going to be rewarded or judged when we get to heaven. So John Corson says, In other words, if you are merciful to others, if you are forgiving toward others, if you are kind and compassionate with others, then when you need mercy and grace and kindness, and you will, it will be given to you. But if you have been harsh and judgmental, if you have been fault-finding and sin-sniffing, when you need mercy from others, there will be none for you. So, to summarise, I thought we'd just read together. Maybe you can stand and do that. We can read James chapter 2, 8 to 13, and we just read it out together. Now, I've been through it, we'll read it together and put it all together. So, James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. If you really fulfil the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, praise you that mercy does triumph over judgment because if it didn't, we'd all be destined for hell. Lord, it's because of your mercy that we are saved. None of us here deserve to be saved. We all deserve to spend eternity in the lake of fire. 
that's the fair punishment for what we have done in rebelling against you. But Lord, because of your great love, you came and rescued us. You sent your only son to die for us, to take our place, and to make the way open to come back into relationship with you. So thank you, Father, for your mercy. Lord, if there's one thing we can get from today, it's that you are merciful. And so help us to show that same mercy to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.